If you have your Bibles, open up with me to Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. I am excited to continue on this series that we've been talking about, the gospel, the book about the gospel. The Galatians verify there is no other gospel. And what we've been doing is it's been, we're walking through the, the gospel at this church. Basically, we believe that the gospel changes people and God uses people to change the world. That we don't have a new gospel. We don't have a different gospel. All we have is the gospel to do what it is set out to be. See, because here's the thing, and I've stated it before and talked about it many times. There's one like reality that most people, I would say 99.9% of people will affirm. That reality is life is tragic. Right. The, the, the bottom line is that all you have to live, anybody who has lived for any extended period of time would recognize, embrace the reality that life is tragic. It's hard. Hardships and hard times. Even if you would say you had a good life, all you have to do is open your eyes to see that it's not that it's not the good life for a lot of people. Right. So there is one reality that life is tragic. And the other reality as believers is that we believe that God is faithful. Right. And we live in this tension between life being tragic and God being faithful. And what people have recognized is that whether they believe in God or not, that people are trying to come up with solutions and answers to the problem that life is tragic. Right. That life is tragic. And Everything else is kind of our response to that. How do we find meaning in a, in, in a world of tragedy? How do we find purpose? How do we find sense of belonging and mattering? And all of the things that's taking place that's coming back to the hardships and the hard times. Last week, Pastor Carly preached a message talking about, and, and one of his core themes was that but God moment. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ in here, you have had a but God moment right? And ultimately, most of us has had that but God moment because of some type of tragic thing that was going on in our lives, whether it was purposelessness, identity, loss, or whatever it was, there was something that was going on right there. And because people, we're all responding to that. You see, but here's the thing, that whenever you have kind of a common thing that we can all agree on, the fact that life is tragic. The problem is, is that because we are made up of different cultures and different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different things, we all come out with a variety or various amount of different solutions to this problem, right? And so that is kind of what comes out of it is that we, we come out of this. Um, I have a study that we do every Friday morning at 6.30 in the morning. We call it the breakfast club. It's the breakfast club, but we don't eat at the breakfast club. The Bible says that man should not live off of bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we, we feast on God's word. But in the breakfast club, basically, we get together and, and we're studying right now the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, basically, it's coming out of this problem or this tragedy. What is the tragedy, right? You have been a people who have been oppressed for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, right? The Israelites, they have been oppressed. And in the book of Acts, do you know what their first, um, like, the solution that they thought that God was going to bring, right? Their first question was in Acts chapter 1 and, and 3 or 4, it says this. It says, is it time? for you to restore power 
back to Israel. Ultimately, they're asking a question that, all, that you and I often ask is that in a time of oppression, in a time of tragedy, in a time of hardship, are you now going to put us back on top? Because when we think, when we get power, we will no longer feel the hardship, the tragedy, the pressure, right, that we have. And so that was their natural question. Is it time? And what was Jesus' response? That you're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. It's not about, is it time? The real question, he says, you will receive power. But that's not, you know, but it's not the type of power that you want. The type of power that you will receive is the power to be my witnesses. And, those, and that witness will be a witness about Christ, a witness of the person and the work of Christ. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the world, right? You see, we hear that and we just take it as like, oh man, of course. Yes, that's what the Christian message is, is that we ought to take the gospel to the world and all things are important, you know, that as we go. But see, here's the tension. That's uncommon. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. There was a professor named Layman Sanaa. Layman Sanaa basically said that there is only one world religion, one world religion where 80 to 90% of its participants is not in the country of its origin. You understand what I'm saying? Every other religion, Buddhist, is predominantly in Asia right? African tribal religions is predominantly in, in Africa. Basically, like whether it's this continent or these countries, all of the world religions, Christianity is the only world religion where over, where 80% of its participants is not in the country of its origin, right? And so if we, that we recognize that a Christian faith was birthed out of Jerusalem, but actually has a very small percentage of actual Christians. You see, so in there, what I'm saying is that there's some inherent problems and some things to celebrate about that, that we are a multi-ethnic church because of Jesus's proclamation to say power will be received in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this is, a, in the one way, a celebration of what God is doing. But with that, there also comes unique challenges because we come with different solutions or different cultural solutions. Right? Because if people are solving problems in a variety of different ways, you are going to naturally gravitate to the way that your particular culture has solved problems. Whether that's um, middle class or lower class, whether that's um, African American or Hispanic American, whether that's Asian American, whether, like that we will come to approach this in a variety of different ways. So the question becomes is how do we know what thus saith the Lord? Right? How do we know what thus saith the Lord? Because that when we have so many different opinions, so many different ideas, so many different thoughts, how do we find, get rooted in something that's solid? Right? There's an old um, passage, there's a passage in Proverbs 29, 18. And in Proverbs 29, 18, basically it says, and you guys are probably, if you grew up in the church, you probably remembered this in the NKJV um, version. And that NKJV says, where there, where, where there is no vision, what? 
the people perish, right? And so that is the, that's the old, that's the King James Version and in the, in the New King James Version, a translation of the Bible. But some of the newer translations in terms of how they translated that verse, um, they, they change the word. And I think it's an appropriate change, right? They, instead of saying where there's no vision, the people perish, Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no divine revelation, the people cast off for strength, right? You see, there's a difference because when we think about this concept of vision, when we think about the concept of vision, we think vision is something that's born from within us. It comes, it's humanly kind of conspired. That's why books like The Purpose Driven Church and The Purpose Driven Life, there's so many books that are, like, if you can just find the purpose, because we want something that gives us both meaning and belonging and mattering, Right. And so we're looking for purpose, but we think that comes from within. That's why so many of us, we, you know, when we're trying to find purpose in life, people are even telling us to look within for purpose. Right. Because we think vision comes from kind of looking within. You see, but the Bible and what the, the proverb was saying was, no, your purpose, your meaning doesn't come from within. It says where there is no divine revelation, when God has not revealed himself, the people cast off for strength. And what ultimately is saying is that when there's no king in Israel, Judges, the book of Judges says, the people do whatever is right in their own eyes. If that's not American Christianity, right, where there is no king, and that now we, me, myself, and I have become the sole authoritative on what's right and what's not right. Right. And so that's why he says, no, where there's no divine revelation when God has not revealed himself. This is where we at. So when we talk about the book of Galatians, right, and when we named it Galatians verified, there's no other gospel. When Paul, a couple of weeks ago, when we talked about if anyone preaches a different gospel than what I preach to you, let this person be accursed. Ultimately, what he is saying is that he's saying that, hey, There is one gospel, and that gospel, the origin of that gospel has come through Jesus. And that is the only gospel. And so basically, don't get cute with the gospel, right? Because there is no other gospel, right? So that's why we say that it's the gospel that changes people, right? There is no other gospel, And so what Paul is doing in this book, he basically begins authenticating the message of the gospel. But the question becomes is why? Why is it so important that we verify or validate the message of the gospel, right? To know that what we have in the message is a sure faith. It's certain. It's something that we can take home right? That Paul goes on to even to say that, that if the gospel is not true, if Christ wasn't resurrected, he says that I am the chief of among all the, fool, the foolish people, right? Because I put everything, I put all of my confidence in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. But how can Paul be so certain? And I think this is where we pick up and where we see the, the certainty of the gospel, Right. And I think it's really important for us to understand why not only why does God reveal the gospel, um, why it's important that how, how he reveals the gospel, but why does he do it through the trusted apostles? 
the trusted apostles, because Paul, in these first two chapters, all the way really chapter 1, um, starting at verse 10, 11, all the way to chapter 2, verse 14, Paul spends most of that time, over 20% of the book of Galatians, just simply testifying about his authority, his apostolic authority, right? And why, you, why he can make such a bold claim in Galatians chapter 1 and 9 of why he is so confident that even if an angel comes to you and give you a different gospel, that let that angel, let whoever, man, woman, or child be accursed because there is no other gospel, right? And so he, he, he sets it. He sets it. And there's three things ultimately that I want us to see in this, um, in this message that when he talks about how he verifies himself as an apostle, basically authenticating his message in distracting times, right? Then we're going to see this idea of how he anchors his message with a variety of applications. And then he's going to talk about how he announces this message in divided times, right? So this is where we're going. This is where we're going to spend a few minutes because here's the thing. Jesus has revealed himself. If you are a Christian, Jesus has made it abundantly clear when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is ultimately laying stake and laying the claim that, I, that Jesus has cornered the market when it comes to knowing God the Father. And that the only way that you can know God the Father is through Jesus. Amen. See, that's a bold claim. The apostles continued that message. But here's the thing. What makes the apostles any different than Muhammad, who claimed to see Jesus or claimed to see God in the, sixth, in the sixth century? What makes them any different than Joseph Smith, who claimed to see God and get all these things in the, in the 1800s? What claims to be different when in 1832, the, um, I forgot the, the gentleman's name, basically prophesied that in 1830, 1843 that Jesus was going to come back? And didn't come back, and then that was what birthed the Jehovah's Witnesses. What makes it any different that there is this claim, right, that is made? What separates the Christian, Christianity where we can lay claim and we can know with a sense of certainty that we are following the one and true God? This is important because it validates both the gospel message and then also validates, verifies the truth of the message. And so verse 1 of chapter, um, um, yeah, in here again, three parts. We want to talk about authenticate the message in distracting times. Last week, again, Pastor Carly talked about this concept of the but when God. Let me pick up. I'm going to pick up there, and then we're going to look at chapter 2. But in verse 15, real quick, um, in three verses, says, But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles. Right. And so right here, Paul is talking about that. That Last week, we talked about 
Paul was on a certain trajectory, but as Pastor Carly talked about last week, that he has had that but when God moment. That everybody that is believers in here has had a but when God moment. That we had a certain trajectory, a certain way, a certain thing that our life was going, but God intercepted. But God intervened. God came in and he set us on a different path. But the question is, is what is that different path? That different path was made up on a lot of different backgrounds and cultures and, and variations, right? And so the second part of that, and what oftentimes we can overlook, it says, there was a but when God moment. And he says, I was in my mother's womb. God set me apart and called me by his grace and was pleased to reveal his son in me. But then this is the second half of that verse, verse 16. So that... I can preach him to the Gentiles. God creates a but God moment so that we can do what he's called us to do. Right? There's a reason. And that so that may, for me, may look different than for you. And see, and that's where the, tri- the challenges come. That's when the, 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 the tension comes is that there's no ambiguity in the but God, but there's different applications in the so that. You you following me? Right? And that's where the tension comes for us. So Paul, basically, he goes in, he verifies his apostleship to authenticate the message because that so that can be so distracting. And it can cause us to get off our game in so many ways. It can ultimately bring division, right? But, it, it, but, it, but here it distracts us. So Paul supernaturally goes back and talks about his conversion, his calling, his commissioning as his primary defenses of the gospel. Why you can trust him, right? Why you can trust um, this, the, authentic, the authentic message in Distracting times. Do you understand? I've already said it that Paul uses up 20% of the book of Galatians testifying. Right? And really, because his apostleship was being questioned. So the question becomes is how do we authenticate Paul's message? How do we know that we can trust Paul? You see, um, the Bible talks about how this message has been laid out or has been given to us through the apostles. Right. And apostle is this comes from the Greek word with basically apostello, which ultimately means one sent by God with authority. Right. One who is sent by God with authority. You see, but anybody could not claim to be an apostle. There were certain qualifications that it took for you to be an apostle. Right. In the in the sense that we see in the New Testament times. Right. In those those, um, the three ways, all you have to do is go and look at Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, it talks about um, the ways in which you um, could be verified as an apostle. And the three ways was, one, that you walked with Jesus. Two, that you witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. And three, that you were called or sent specifically by Jesus. Right. And so that you claim to be with Jesus, the, the, that during this time there was heresy that immediately went into the church. And it was those apostles that were the ones that were to be the plumb line, the people who to to get us when we were straying to the right or to the left to get us back on track because they were witnesses of Jesus. 
right? And they were to create the boundaries for what authentic Christianity could look like. You see, but there was other people in that time that started being raised up. There was a group called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics were a group of people that has the Greek word gnosis, basically means Gnostics. They, they, they had a higher knowledge, right? And this higher knowledge, they claim, superseded the authority of the apostles, right? And the apostles combating Gnosticism basically would, um, time and again, talking about the reason why that your vision cannot supersede our reality is because we were with Jesus. We walked with him. So 1 John chapter 1, when John was combating this and talking about and trying to keep the sincerity of the message, in 1 John chapter 1, 1 through 3, it says this, what was from the beginning, what we have heard with our own eyes, what we have observed and touched with our own hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it and testified and declared to you the eternal life that was with the Father and revealed to us. And then he goes on and says, what we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. So the apostles are basically saying, you can trust us because I'm not talking about a vision or a divine revelation. I'm talking about hands-on, eyes-seeing things that we experience with the word of life, with God. It's sort of imagine my dad's birthday was yesterday um, January the 20th is my father's birthday. And some of you already know that my dad passed in um, September 10th of 2008. Um, so every year on September the 10th and every year on January 20th, I try to take some time just to remember my dad and grieve my dad um, well. My dad played professional football. And, you know, my dad grew up in New Orleans and he was born to Veronica. Veronica was my grandmother, was a... Um, um, she was a prostitute, I can't say it any um, way, and she was murdered at the age of 13. My dad went looking to kill the person, right, that tried to, that killed his mom, and basically they shipped him off to Crenshaw, right, Los Angeles, and that's where my dad and my mom met, you know, so on and so forth. I'd say that story um, for a couple of reasons. If someone were to come and to write a story about my dad, who do you think they would go to? Right? If I said that, hey, I live with my dad, I talk with my dad, I had story time with my dad, and you know, and I was with my dad, but then someone else came and said, hey, I know Reggie Lewis actually better than Dahati Lewis, because I had a vision about Reggie Lewis. And Reggie Lewis was, you know, he started talking about all these visions and dreams that he had about Reggie Lewis. Let me, whose account would you trust more? Well, Reggie Lewis is gone. <laughs> Right, right, but you would trust my account more. Why? Because what would I've held with, I've seen with my own eyes, what I declare, I, what I give, I now declare to you, right? And so the apostles, and this is why we spend so much time verifying and validating that Paul is an apostle. Is Paul, and, and Paul basically goes through this over time and time again, 
just verifying his credibility because his credibility was questioned. And basically he says that he is credible because of his conversion, because of his calling, because of his commissioning. What did he say basically in Galatians chapter 1, 13 through 16, that he was saved by God? We see that in Galatians chapter 1 and 16, that he was sent by God. We see that in Galatians 1.10, that he was a doulos or a servant of God. That even that he says that after his conversion, he didn't immediately talk to any of the apostles or any um, people that were in the faith, but he was actually schooled by God in Arabia. That he says that, in that even what he was doing, like he says, I was on a certain trajectory and this message that's about to go to the Gentiles was even started by God. Right? He says, this wasn't my idea. I was a Jew trying to eliminate all the Christians. I was trying to eliminate Christians. Right? Like, like, this is not my idea. I'm like you in a lot of ways. I'd rather be around people who look like me, talk like me, act like me. I, I prefer that. Right? But it was, this, was, this idea was started by God. And not only that, it is declared, I'm declaring this in the sight of God. You see, we got to recognize that when God is talking about his multi-ethnic church and the, the multi-ethnic bride that he is bringing of all nations, basically he is saying that he has to overcome some things in you and me in order to do that. Because left up to you and me, we will only hang around people who look like us, talk like us, and act like us people who vote like us, people who respond like us, right? That's the way we would go about doing things. I was sharing with the Breakfast Club the other, the other day talking about, this is a real mission strategy years ago. Um, it's a strategy called Grits Evangelism. Have anybody ever heard of Grits Evangelism, right? Grits Evangelism is an evangelism strategy that people from the North or the Far West would use that have moved over there from the South. So just here, just imagine, right, you moved to New York and you wanted to start a church in New York or you want to start a church in, in, um, in Cali, right? And you, you, you employ this Grits Evangelism and Grits Evangelism is going to the grocery store and you would literally stand in the aisle and look at anybody who came to the grocery store and went to the grits section and picked up grits. Because if they picked up grits, what they would be saying is that you are from the South. And because you're from the South, then I would then go and evangelize to you, right? Because it's an easier way of converting because what? We all are from the same place. We have so much in common. Right? This was actually a mission strategy, right? And people do. You see, but we laugh at that. But here's the thing. We do the same thing today. We set up a type of church and a certain type of things with all, built all on our preferences. We build it up and we say, people who like this, come. Right? And even in America, do you know that the only growing population in America is first gen in, in terms of conversion in Christianity? The only growing, only rate of Christianity is growing in North America is first generation. First generation, meaning people who come, immigrant over here, over here, which is hallelujah, praise the Lord. But here's the thing. It's grits evangelism. Oftentimes they come and they want a piece of home. 
So they connect in a community that feels like home. And then what ends up happening is they get converted to the God of that community, right? You see, none of us have a problem with that type of evangelism. But the type of evangelism that we do have a problem is when people don't look like me. The cross-cultural type of evangelism. And here's the problem. That same group that is growing, that with the, the challenges now that Grits evangelism does, is that when you raise up children who don't buy into the same Grits evangelism, then you have these first-generation churches struggling with keeping their children stayed in because they've been raised in an American culture. And so there's the tension, right? And so here's the tension. Again, we all are struggling with the same thing that Paul, I like it where people look like me, talk like me, act like me. And Paul says, I'm the same way. I was, I was adamant about my, my faith. I was adamant about my, my, my ancestry. He says, but God, so that God intervened. Right? And so the question becomes is that he, after he validates this, that he was schooled by God, started by God, all these things that came from God, that he was the initiator, <clears throat> the question now becomes is how do we apply this message? How do we apply the so that and validate this um, in Christ? And so here we see that in, it says in verse chapter 2, verse 1, it says, then after 14 years, I, re, I went up again to Jerusalem and Barnabas taking Titus along also. And I went up according to a revelation and presented it to them the gospel that I have preached among the Gentiles. But privately to those who recognized as leaders, I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had been running in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was was compelled, wasn't, but even, but not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised. Even though he was a Greek, this matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. But we did not give up and submit to these people for even a moment. And there is that word again, so that. So that the truth of the gospel would be preserved, right? Paul does these things. Why Paul is so adamant in here, it says, so that the message, the authenticity of the gospel would be preserved, that we could have confidence that we have the same gospel that was preached that uh, 2,000 years ago because of the fight. Right? And so what Paul is doing in this kind of um, verification of the gospel is that he is basically anchoring his message in a way that can be applied in a variety of different ways. Where, where do I get that from? Basically what we see in this text, Paul, after 14 years of kind of doing his work and doing things with God, proclaiming the gospel and seeing conversion, Gentiles conversions taking place, Paul goes and then he, there's a problem. Some, um, they say the party of the circumcision came in. We recognize that the party of the circumcision was James, people from James camp, another apostle, you know, and the disciples of James basically came in and they started trying to sneakily um, spy out the liberty that was going on there. And so they wanted to come in and says, hey, 
praise the Lord for all of the stuff taking place, the conversions. I even hear that you spoke in tongues. All of these things that, that are taking place. But here, here's the thing. If you really want to be a true believer in Christ, there's a thing that you have to do. You have to be circumcised. And this is the first time that we see that it's in the book of Galatians. But what does circumcision represent? Circumcision is ultimately, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an Old Testament reality that says that in order to be a Jew or to worship Yahweh, that what they were saying is that you had to denounce your ethnicity. I had to denounce my African-Americanness. I had to de- denounce whatever your ethnicity was, and you had to perform the ritual of circumcision. And that ritual would then say it's a formal way that in the same way we do baptism now, that he says that in the same way that you have denouncing, you have died to your old self and you have now been resurrected and you now have to become culturally a Jew, right? You have to be culturally a Jew. And then once you are culturally a Jew, then you can now worship Yahweh. So here we are now, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the question now becomes, is the question that was being asked, which is the question that's being asked in the book of Acts. The question is, that is answered, asked here, the question that's being asked in Acts is this, how Jewish do I have to be in order to be a Christian? How Jewish. And what's so interesting is that Paul spends the, the, a lot of the book of Acts that the Bible reveals in the book of Acts in Galatians, in Ephesians, basically arguing the point of saying, hey, you don't have to become a Jew in order to be Christian. It's amazing that in our day and age now, it's kind of like pumped up that, you know, that it's actually better to be culturally a Jew. And that you're actually closer to God when that takes place. And so what we see ultimately that the first deconstruction, the first decolonizing is actually done in the book of Acts. It's actually done in the book of Galatians. It's actually done like all of that. You see, but the issue is, is that they, Paul also reconstructed and recolonized but he didn't reconstruct and recolonize to your now cultural preference. He reconstructed and recolonized to Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He reconstructed to the gospel. And so what's happening is that there is this overcompensation that's taking place. And this overcompensation comes out of the so that. It comes out of the so that. You see, because culturally as a Jew, They came in and they were circumcised and they had biblical precedent to be circumcised, right? It would be sort of like now if somebody came with a vision or a dream and says, hey, you guys, baptism is no longer needed. Just think about that. How would you respond to say baptism is no longer needed because of this new revelation? You would have a problem with that, right? You see, but that was what's taking place in the Jewish faith. They said circumcision is no longer a requirement for faith in Christ. So the Jews had a problem with that. You remember, like the Jews was like, you remember Moses? Like God almost took out Moses, his son, because of the lack of circumcision. So this is, they had biblical precedent, but God is like, there's a new iteration and there's a new tension that's coming. And now he's saying that there's no longer, there's a new circumcision. That's the circumcision of the heart. It's no longer a circumcision of the flesh. 
It's no longer cultural circumcision. It's now a spiritual circumcision, a circumcision of the heart. And so now he brings about this new reality. And so in that circumcision has different applications. And, and I'm just going to say this point, there's never once in the Bible that Paul or Peter or James or John ever says, hey, Jews, stop being circumcised. What he does say is that it's not a prerequisite of salvation. You see, they, you could have that but God moment, but when you apply that so that moment, it may look different for the Jews than it does for the Gentiles. You see, but that brings all types of problems because we, we don't feel like that seems like it's loose. The how do you that into like what do you right? But that's what Paul is ultimately saying. And because and, and how do I get that? He says basically, what happens? These Jews, he says, they presented the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who do not recognize. Verse three, he said, but Titus was not compelled. Um, verse four, because the matter arose because some false brothers. And had infiltrated our ranks to do what? To spy out our freedom. To spy out our freedom. You see, here's the thing. We all get saved by grace, but you know what we all try to do? We try to keep it by the law. And we all kind of create our cultural Christianity. And so that's why if you, you know, if you grew up in the church, whatever it is, you know, you like the real spiritual people. If you grew up in, let me, I'm just going to stereotype. Can I, can I stereotype for a little bit? Uh, so like in stereotypical way, basically what we would say, like if you was in the white church, you know, like white worship leaders, it's like, oh God, you like, you get real somber and low when you're just like, you're connecting with God. Like, God, you're just, you're so good. Like. Low. But then if you go to the black church, it's like, hallelujah, like you were connected with God. The more you talked and the louder that you got with God, right? So it's just like, and so what do we do, right? If you were raised in the church, then you celebrate more. If you're in the black, and if you were here, you're more pensive and you're more thoughtful, and, right? Right? And so there's a problem now when you bring these cultures together. It's okay when we're separate. But when we come together, do I get silent? Do I yell? I don't know. I'm just going to sit here and do nothing. <laughs> right? So when Corey says, come on, y'all, basically he said, come on, this is how I was raised in the church. And we celebrate God. Right? It's a so that. It's different applications. It doesn't mean white believers continue to be pensive. It's okay. Right? Black believers, if you want to, Hispanic, all of all the Asian, like this, hey, however you bring worship God in spirit and in truth. Right? And that's what Paul is ultimately saying. And he says, don't miss it. Some of us are overcorrecting. Because in the same way we were asking the question, how Jewish do you have to be in order to be a Christian? What the question is being asked right now is how white do I have to be? in order to be a Christian. You see, but here's the thing, there's gonna be different so that's. We're gonna all read the Bible faithfully and come out with different applications. And guess what? And we can all be in orthodoxy. You see, the but God is the things that we can't wrestle with. By faith alone, through Christ alone, the but God, the salvation, justification, there's no ambiguity. The so that, 
there are some different applications, and Paul is talking about this, and he says, for those of us that try to come in and say that there's only one true way to, to reflect the so that, and that is my way, you are coming in to spy or to um, enslave what the gospel has made free. Right? You are trying to enslave what the gospel has made free. And so this is what Paul is saying, that he says that this is the gospel. And he says that this gospel has been entrusted to him. And so the final thing is Paul's stewardship of the gospel among the Gentiles, that he uses that, this concept to, to announce a unifying message in a dividing world. That he says that, hey, you know, now, from those recognized as important, what they once makes no difference to me, God no, does not show favoritism. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I have been entrusted. That Greek word entrusted is done in the active, but the active tense of that word basically means believe. The passive tense, which is there, it means to be entrusted, right? And so in the active, it's saying that, that we are to believe, but in the passive, it says God has entrusted, right? Paul is ultimately saying that this is not my message. I didn't sit up in a room and just kind of cleverly thought up of this thing, of this new vision, because it wasn't my vision, but it was a divine revelation. Because where there is no divine revelation, the people cast off restraint. He says, I'm not just bringing up my perspective of the gospel. I'm bringing the gospel that has been revealed to us. And so he says, and not only does I did, he says, I've been entrusted to the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was to the circumcised, since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in the Gentiles in me. So when James, Cephas, and John, those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that has been given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I had already made every effort to do. Basically, what he's saying is this. Paul is not talking about two different gospels. There's a gospel to the Gentile and then there's a gospel to the, to the circumcised. He's already said there's no other gospel. There's only one true gospel. But basically what he's saying is that the gospel presented among the Gentiles and the gospel presented among the, the Jews are, are solving different problems. They're solving different problems. Different cultures have different problems. Right? But the gospel is the solution to these different problems, the variation of the different problems. And so he's saying, but here's the thing. The gospel is not only left up to his interpretation. Throughout this time, he says, I've been revealed by God. And then what did he say earlier? We're talking about a man who wrote 13 books of the New Testament. He says, I was afraid that I, that, that I went to the apostles, the pillars of the faith, to make sure that I was not running in vain. You guys understand? Right? that I'm not running in vain. So the apostle Paul was willing to submit what he received as divine revelation. So that was one thing that it was divine revelation, but it was also validated through the pillars of the faith. This is super significant because we are, we are in a day when everybody thinks the only person that needs to validate God's message in our lives is me, myself, and I. That is a lie of American Christianity. It is, is birthed out of the individualism that American 
the syncretism that, um, that comes from America, that the, all, the only person that needs to be validated and verified your gospel is you. Paul submitted his gospel to the church, to other believers, to other people who were recognized in the faith. He submitted to recognize, am I thinking right about this? He later says that I knew that I wasn't thinking right, but I did still submit and bring that to the church, to the apostles, right? And see, and here's the thing that we see Paul's gospel being both one that is divinely revealed, but also affirmed by other believers. Does that mean that we're all going to think the same and act the same and we're going to come, kind of come with this Catholic kind of religion? I'm not talking about popes and all of that stuff. What I'm saying is that just like in Acts chapter 16, 17, where it says that when Paul began to preach, he says that they submitted the gospels to the Bereans and the Bereans basically were more noble than the Thessalonians because they were willing to come and submit their understanding of the scriptures to one another. And once you start submitting your understanding of the scriptures to one another, then you can start applying some of the stuff that we've been talking about. Is this principle, prudence, or preference? And this is the way that the church has dealt with heresy, dealt with inauthenticity. You see, because here's the thing. You can be sincere about what you believe, but you can also be sincerely wrong. Your sincerity is not a validation of the gospel. The gospel is the only validation of the gospel. So what we do is that we mutually submit our understanding of the gospel to one another. That's why we do city groups. That's why we do Bible studies. That's why we have accountability. That's why we come to church because it's a form of submitting what we believe about God. Because here's the thing is that life is tragic and God is faithful. And the gospel is what we believe is the only solution to that bridge. And it's out of that that we mutually submit God's message that was given to us by an eyewitness account. And we wrestle so that we can apply and make sure that we're still within orthodoxies in our so that's as we scatter with the different applications. So this is our prayer. And keep coming back as we continue to study the book of Galatians. And as Paul continues to talk about how does he take a religion that started off so homogeneous that we're asking the questions, is it time for you to put Jews back on top and to end so diverse? That brings about all the inherent challenges and problems that 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 comes with that, right? Galatians and books like this helps us to be able to navigate all of that. So let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your mercy, for your grace. Thank you, Father, for this book that we can be reminded, Father, of the gospel verified, how you have through the eyewitness accounts of these apostles, through the authenticity of your message, the integrity of your message, Father, and even through the confirmation of the confirmation of it, Lord, we pray, God, that we, like the saints of old, would come together and submit our understanding of the gospel to one another. Because here's the thing, God, we know and we recognize that your word is without error, but our interpretation of your word is with error. And that's why we need one another to come together in this. 
So, Father, to you be the glory, the honor, and the praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.